So, that, so all of that leads me here. Why are we uh-huh. standing on top of a giant landfill? What? Like, why did you take me here? And why do I see so many discarded candles? Well, Dave. Okay. I wanted you to see firsthand the problem facing the candle industry. Mm. L- let me hit you with this stat. This okay. is actually sit down okay. on all those discarded candles. Ow, 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 ow. Yeah, it's going to be sharp. Almost two billion candles are sold globally each year, and almost all of them are likely to end up in landfills for the next million years. Okay, I, I wouldn't say this to a lot of people, John. Yeah. You're not lying to me because you don't lie to me, John. I, I would never lie, especially about candles. I, saw, I told you that the first years, day we met. That is Gnarls Barkley crazy. Although I must admit, this landfill does smell pretty great <laughs> compared to what I anticipated. <laughs> the, you know, the candles do kind of pick that part up, but it's disturbing. John. Hey, Dave, yeah. you're funny, but this is no time to I'm joke. So okay, the you. folks at Notes yep. knew that we all want our homes to smell great. I do. But figured... There had to be a more responsible way, and guess what? They found the perfect solution. What did they come Let up with? Let me tell you. If you'll stop interrupting so me, I'll tell you. So Notes created a refillable candle system that allows you to use your candle vessel again and again. And guess what, Dave? Again. Again. Yes. Please don't interrupt me. So you don't become part of the problem. It's so easy to use. The candles are made with fragranced wax beads, and all you do is place the wick in the reusable Notes jar Fill it up with the wax beads, enjoy your fragrance for up to 36 hours, and then just do it all over again when you're ready to get a new one. Oh, so that means I can switch out of fragrances all the time. That's right. That sounds great. I'm checking out their website, and I think I already have my eye on the Centol and Atlas, Atlas Cedar. Cedar. Yeah, I knew that would be Plumeria and Pink Current. Yep, mm. yep, yep. The one that you're enjoying right now, uh-huh. smell that? Mm, it's vanilla and pepperwood. Ooh. That's like my two favorite scents. No, And the names of your bunnies, right? That's right. Okay. Yeah, just coincidence there. <laughs> okay. Did you know that there are 13 amazing fragrances what? in all? Dave, that's almost 14 oh. fragrances. Handcrafted <laughs> by fragrance experts at their home base in South Carolina. And they are to die for. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Be a responsible consumer while not giving up on high-quality home fragrance by making the switch to Notes. You can build your custom starter kit right now at notecandles.com slash podcast. Right now, Notes is giving listeners 15% off and free shipping when you buy a Notes starter kit using code DADVILLE. Just use code DADVILLE when placing your order. That's code DADVILLE at notecandles.com slash podcast. Hi, I'm Dave Barnes. And I'm John McLaughlin. And welcome to Dadville. Dadville is a podcast where we talk about life, love, and the pursuit of awesome dadding. It's funny thoughts and deep talks. So please, enjoy your time here in Dadville and enjoy this episode with... Charles Estes. I... I'm going to be really honest with you. Do you want us to call you Chip or Charles? That was my that first was, question. That was the honesty right there? <laughs> well, I'm getting to the honesty. <laughs> okay. Um, and call me Chip. Everybody knows me as Charles, but um, yes. my friends and all Dave know me can as call Chip, you Chip, and you and are my friend. Yeah. I can oh. call you Charles if you want. As you no, log you off. you can call me Chip. <laughs> as you log off, you're like, all right, see you guys. Um, I, I, John and I, I'm going to come in hot here, Chip. I'm coming in okay. hot. This is, I think, collectively one of our most excited, most excitement. Where am I going with this? Most. <laughs> You're nailing it so far. <laughs> I think the grammarly, the excite of the. Bruce Lee. 
I don't know how to do this. That was so ridiculous. That was the highest praise you could give me. That was the kid. That was like the three-year-old kid that was so excited. He runs in and sort of has that moment. We realize everybody's looking at him and he doesn't know what to do. And it's his birthday party. That's what it felt like to me. It was sort of like, okay, oh gosh, grandma, grandpa. Um, Okay, let's try that again. Yeah, so <laughs> Buenos dias a la izquierda de Moscow. Uh, it's, uh, I, I'm just really excited about this. I, 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 uh, I told John, and, and, and since we've started recording, I want to start with this story. We, um, I, there's like three or four moments in my life that I look back on, and I think that that was one of those moments that I didn't think I'd get. And when I did, I was really excited about it. Goes, it starts in a locker room. Um, a young man, confused, but glad to be there no i i had played at john's face john did the puppy what where's he going with this huh. no so i i had was doing um around for the bluebird movie i had not yet met you chip i was very very excited to though because i have been as you know a fan for a very long time mainly from your who's line days which to me you know trying to be funny my whole life i was obsessed with um so i was so excited when you were doing nashville because i was like oh my gosh he's now in nashville that means like i'm gonna bump into him at pottery barn and have this awkward conversation and try to get some of his beard hair i but, remember um, that month that you slept in the parking lot at pottery yeah barn. thank you thank you let's yeah. let's circle back to that later but um but i remember we did the round for the bluebird i'm show. so sorry i was at the boot barn i, I was at the wrong I barn know. i didn't <laughs> i got there it confused <laughs> There it, is. it was the stepsister of the Pottery Barn, the Boot Barn. Um, but so, so we we I get, I get invited to play around for the Bluebird movie. They're shooting the documentary on the Bluebird. I'm so thrilled. It's me, Lucy, Tanil, and um, and Eric Pasley. And they tell me when I get there, you know, Chip's going to be sitting in for a song. And I was like, oh man, I can't believe he's. Uh, maybe this is my chance to meet him. So we do we do the round and. I'm doing my thing, you know, the song and dance, the the whole pony show. Is that a phrase? And we get to, you come in and you sing the song, and I'm like trying to lock eyes with you so we can have a moment, which you kind of kept deterring. But um, we get done with the whole show. I, I, you know, and I'm doing, I'm just, you know, I'm doing my thing. I'm telling my stories, being an idiot. And I remember you came over to me, and I was just, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so great, great to meet you. And I remember you were like, man, you are really funny. And I was like. Okay, that's it. I thank you. Hug it out. I'm heading back to Mississippi. This is all that I needed in my life. <laughs> I just remember feeling so seen and validated by this huge, huge idol of mine. And it was like, I was, I just, I remember I got home and and he was like, "How was Ron?" I was like, "It was fine." Listen to what happened. I oh, met you. He was so cool, and we talked about funny things. And I just went to bed like smiling. You know those nights, that's... like. That's I don't even know what to say to that, Dave, because you're you're my friend and we've known each other for all these years now. Um I knew you were on that night. You were there was an extra I mean I mean Dave Barnes and then on. Um but you were hilarious. You're just just the conversation back and forth with everybody. I mean, that's what people probably don't know makes the best part of a great round i mean the songs are all good you probably should play some yeah (laughs) um but in general that rapport that back and forth i've had some of my favorite nights at those things um and that's very very nice um whose line was an absolute blast and i know how many people just sort of they didn't grow up with it some did it's been that it's been on that long actually i i 
It, no, I it has. On. Whose line is it anyway? I believe in 1992. Maybe yeah. even one. In yeah, England. I feel like I grew up on that, on that you, show. You may have, yeah. 100%. Um, and those guys are unbelievable. And to be honest, there's not a bigger fan of Whose Line than me. If you watch the show, nobody's laughing harder. <laughs> not supposed to, I've, I heard later. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I was always just I would go home from the tapings and my face would hurt. Oh I'd yeah. Be in the yeah. car going, Oh God, why does my face hurt? Because mm. it's been doing this all night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. anyway, it's a blast. So this is what has been fun. John and I were, you know, putting our heads together, sort of talking about um any some plans and some uh, you know, things we want to talk about. But it's really crazy. So when you sort of compile your um your we call it a brag sheet, we always begin with the brag sheet um mm -hmm. and it's pretty amazing i mean i knew a lot of this stuff about you chip but i mean it's really impressive when you actually do the dig on how much work you've done like um so you know we'll get to you growing up so i'm not gonna i'm not gonna give that away but um if you go i mean anybody can see this you go to your imdb or your wikipedia page i mean there's so much work and what the, i mean from from having you know I, I cheated and looked in your page you know born in pittsburgh pennsylvania charles chip estimates right We'll get to all that, but I think you know between. I, okay, you're like we better. Um, but I think here it's fun. You know, it talks about your time in London, which you've already mentioned. On but you know, playing Buddy, uh, in playing Buddy Holly and Buddy. Um, you've, I mean, this is crazy. You've performed for the Queen and Prince Philip, and eventually the President and George H. W. Bush, the White House. Uh, performed with Jerry Allison and Joby Malden, original um, hit making Buddies the Crickets, which is crazy to think how full circle that is. We've talked, which we'll talk more about. Whose line is it anyway? Um, when it was on here in the States and ABC, which is still on, I know it's crazy. Uh, and then the big paragraph, which I love, uh, many additional television credits include recurring roles on Big Love, Enlightened, The Office, ER, which is insane, uh, being the father on Disney Channel's Jesse's, been a Klingon on Star Trek, The New Next Generation, which I thought would be a recurring role because it's just a Klingon. <laughs> we can write some of the stuff down if you want to use it later. Uh, a secretary on Murphy Brown and Kelly Bundy's fiance on the season finale of Married with Children. Uh, swing vote, 13 days of Postman movies. I mean, and then now, you know, you fast forward to now uh, and with the work you're doing, you know, it's it's now being on Adam. Asher Banks, which is apparently how the Irish say it on Outer Banks on Netflix. I mean, it's crazy. And obviously, your long run on Nashville, which so many people know you from. Um, it's really nuts what you've been able to achieve. And that's not even getting to your music and the albums and songs you've released, songs you've written on, songs you've sung. Um, knowing, hearing me say all those things. And I mean, I literally look at, like, when I click over here and I look at your um, Wikipedia page, I mean, there, there's all the movie stuff you've done, and then the television, it starts in 1988, and you just scroll. I mean, Murphy Brown, Star Trek, and this is me just flying through this jag. Whose line is it anyway? Uh, Party of Five, The Drew Carey Show, um, Dragnet, which is really wonderfully fascinating and random, The Office, ER, Big Love, The Mentalist. I mean, there's so much work that you have done. Um, me saying that and you hearing it, how does that make you feel like when you think about all that stuff? I don't know. It's interesting. It, um, in some ways, I've, I guess the first thing I feel is gratitude. I'm hmm. deeply grateful that I've been able to live this career. And, and to have these things, and so many of them were just 
God's bounty. I mean, right place, right time needed this show for these personal family reasons. And there it came through. And then I think of all the ones that you don't have. Thank goodness on that page, they don't list all the big shows you didn't get. I auditioned for Friends. (laughs) Wow, I didn't know that. I came so close on Band of Brothers. Um, I came nowhere near close on Arrested Development. So it's so funny. uh, People always see the things you do. They don't get to know the things that you didn't get to do. And those things used to really get me. But what's interesting to me is that always seems like, I guess when you go into it, you think that's the motorcycle of your life, all that stuff. And as I look back, it's the sidecar. Mm. Yeah, wow. my my wife, my kids, my family—that's mm. that's the main thing. And so, whenever you say those things, I think, oh yeah, Patty and I were getting ready for the wedding during that show. Oh yeah, my daughter was born during that show. Oh yeah, yeah. we were. Um, and then also, like I said, there's always seems a lot of providence behind it all. And by the way, I was on Providence. Um, <laughs> some of those shows sound so old i feel like you're going and then he was on bonanza and um uh that girl but um nashville to me was i've I've said it before but it's true it felt like the culmination of all that i really felt that by the time i got on nashville i had been through so much the failures too mm-hmm. just like i was telling you about the stand-up and the improv it took really not doing well at those that's what i learned from not from just walking up and doing well but from yeah. those those difficult times all of those put me in a place in a mentality i wouldn't have been able to land nashville even two years earlier i had reached a place of not that i didn't care i cared deeply but i didn't care at a point where it affected me too much. I felt so blessed in that moment. I remember saying to my agent, I think it was four months maybe before I got Nashville. I said, the problem with me as a client is I'm content. I have, Mm. I'm so grateful for all I have. I have this amazing family that I get to go home to. I work on these shows. I'm not the star of them, but I get to do these incredible arcs on, on, you know, the office or things like that. Um, I said, to me, honestly, anything else would really be gravy. Yeah. And then I literally said, I said, no, don't get me wrong. I love gravy. Gravy's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, do you think at what point did you, gravy. did you, at what point did you kind of arrive at that contentment? Yeah. Were you, Oof. were you there from the beginning? No, no, there were lessons all along the way. Yeah. Real early in, I'm going to say about, first of all, you got to know that, um, about me is, it was about fame early. That's mm-hmm. what it early on was about. I honestly have the memory as a little kid of thinking, I don't think I'll be ever fully happy unless I'm famous, which wow. is a weird thought for a little kid to have. And so that's probably what drove me to chase all these things. But the closer I ever got to it, and I got to hang out with some real famous people along the way. Um, and they were all wonderful people, but I saw how ephemeral and how um, 
the fame wasn't real. It was this odd, strange thing. It had benefits for sure, but it was. So the closer I ever got, it had downsides too. The closer I ever got to it, the less that really mattered. So that's the first mm. thing to say. And then I honestly, when I started, I thought hanging out with Kevin Costner, my wife was his assistant um, back then uh, for about five years. And he was just wonderful to us. Huh. But when I was hanging out with him, I was never like, I'll never be able to do this. My cocky butt was like, yeah, this is coming. And uh, it never did, and I, it won't. I mean, Kevin Costner was, you know, in the pantheon, and, and he's such an amazing actor. But other things came, and I, I remember real early, this is an interesting story that gave me a little head adjustment. Um, there was all these shows I wasn't getting, first five, six years, and you would take a script, and you would get your sides, which are your scenes, and I would work so hard on it, blood, sweat, tears, and then you wouldn't even get a call back, or you'd get a call back, but that would be it, or you wouldn't, or the, the audition would fall through. So I remember I never carried it too heavily, but I remember going, oh. and then one day I decided to clean out my office, and I had a pile of scripts that I had worked on, like up to my knees. It was like a pile of leaves of this, all these things that I had cared so much about. And I couldn't believe what percentage of them had never even gotten on the air or never met anything. I never, and, and I, I thought, you gotta have a little more equanimity here. You can't put, pour it all out. You pour out your effort, but don't pour out your heart to every mm. single one. So that sort of inoculated, inoculated me a little bit against getting too. And so I became a little less needy as you went along. Um, and then, I think that was part of it when you can just relax in it. I mean, you guys probably see that with young artists as well. It's like everything's just like, I got to do this. I got to get, and that's what drives a lot of them. But then there's a point where, oh, I get it. I'm an artist that has musical ideas inside me and musical talents. And my job is to get them out as clearly and as directly and in a way that uh, excites and moves me as possible. And then all the other stuff, will come or won't. Um, that's where I got to. Kind well, of. and I think to, to, to John's question, which I think is so great. Um, I think being at a place, and this is where I'm trying to be. I mean, John and I talk about this a lot for both of us, but trying to be at that place where I don't need anything else. Cause you just live and operate and work and create in such a different way. When you can finally get to this place, you're like, you know what? I really am happy with what I have. I'm happy for my wife and my family and my friends and my faith. And not being in this place where you're like, if I can just get that thing, because you don't, you don't even, you don't live right, you don't work right, you don't create right, correctly in that in that posture. And I think when you finally, it, how many times has it, have we all heard the story of, you know, I met my wife when I stopped trying to meet her. I I landed the gig when I stopped trying as hard. I, I to your exact point, you've said this so many times, even in our hanging out, like when you talk about whose line, you got up there and you had fun, and that's why they hired you. They didn't hire you because you're up there like, don't oh, be funny. Nope, that wasn't funny. Funnier, funny. You know, you, you were just living out of, um, you were living out of surplus as opposed to living limited. You know, you're, you're really believing like this is going to be, okay. I'm just going to figure this out. We're going to have fun with it. Um, tell us about, <laughs> tell us about growing up, um, you know, in PA, which I don't know that I know anybody else from there, but like, what is, what is the Eston? You know, what is the household like? What's home feel like for you as a kid? You know, what, what is that well, place my, my, like? My, my real last name is Puskar, uh, more uh, Eastern European, you look like Slav, a little Hungarian, some Irish, a lot of that in there. And um, it wasn't, it wasn't that 
it got great, but it didn't start great. Mm. My mother and father divorced when I was just about to go into third grade, I believe. So I don't know how old you are, Mm. summer after second grade. What is that, seven? Eight or nine, yeah. 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 And my daughter was two years younger than I was. And my father was... He passed 10 years ago, and I love him so dearly, and we had such an amazing relationship. So I don't feel like I'm telling any tales out of school because he owned his past, and it was the story of his redemption, his faith, is it really made him, that made it a victory, that made what his life mm-hmm. was more of a mm-hmm. victory. Um, but he would point, if it was him telling you, um, he just made a lot of bad decisions and a lot of bad priorities. I think early on he wanted to be an actor himself. Um, and in fact, his he was a big guy, football player in college. Um, it went to the College of William and Mary, um, as did my mother. That's where they met. And his dad didn't come to any football games, really. But his dad did come to a um, play he was in. The Originally, all the jocks we're trying to get free A's. And so they went over to the theater department and basically carried. And then my, they hired my dad or they gave him the, the acting role of Falstaff. And then of these, he got all these big guys with um, beards, which was fake at the time, but ultimately he had one later. In any event, I think he had that big charismatic dynamic personality that would have been good to go into that. But he got a job with the IBM, with IBM, which at that time was the absolute brass ring. There wasn't a better yeah. job to be had. Floor shines and all that. And he really just fully bought into that whole thing of buying the best suits. But more than that, staying out drinking with the boss because you don't never know. You want to make sure that somebody else doesn't get ahead of you. It was all part of the job. Um, I, I don't, I'm not going to go into a full analysis of my dad right now, but it ended up meaning that he wasn't the father he could be or the husband it could be. And on top of that, he had a lot of anger issues and was, uh, it just wasn't a, because of him, he would say a great marriage. And, um, at that time, uh, not, not, it was a loving dad, but in his way. So in any event, I have a couple, I have a vivid memory. One time I was thinking of this just yesterday. I walk, every time I walk by like a bulldozer on a, on a construction site or like a housing lot or something, I have this, if, if there was a, ma- a movie of me, there'd be a scene where my sister's standing by, a, I know my friends and I were by this bulldozer and I got up all the courage to climb up in the seat of the bulldozer. Remember when you're like seven or eight and you're like to do something like that is like, you're certain that the, you know, the world is going to collapse. All the sirens and everything are going to come in, but you get up there and you go, yeah, nobody cares. It's a bulldozer. You're fine. Don't. (laughs) So I got up in it and I'm there and all of a sudden I hear this and my mom slides on Starsky and Hutch slides into the parking lot and I'm like, Oh my God, mom. And she's like, get in the car. And I'm like, Oh my God, my worst nightmare has come true about this bulldozer. I'm sorry, mama. And we start driving and pretty soon I realize we've been driving a while. And I said, what are we doing? She says, we're going to grandma's and we're going to Virginia. We went to Northern Virginia and and that was it. My parents got divorced and that was, it was just, she had had enough at that point. Um, And rightfully so. She used to tell me that she stayed because she wanted me to, she wanted us to have a father. Um, yeah. But then she started to leave because she realized I was getting old enough. She saw it through my eyes that I was going, oh, that's what it's like to be a father. That's how to mm-hmm. be a husband. And she was like, yeah, okay, now I got to go. Um, yeah. 
Wow. And so we left. And ultimately, <clears throat> that rock bottom was good for my father. And he found faith and he found the grace that comes through that and forgiveness. Mm. And I have, I wish it was right here. It's usually at my desk. In the other room, I have my dad's Bible that he left mm. me when he passed. And guys, it's held together with silver duct tape. If you can work a Bible so hard that it needs silver duct tape to hold it together. <laughs> work work <and>, a Bible. <laughs> right. And I and I open it now and sometimes I'll just be reading, especially Proverbs. It's like this gift. It's like this time travel talking to my father that went through all the mistakes he made because mm -hmm. it's highlighted and underlined and mm -hmm. circled and remember this and things about. And so it's like a conversation with him because he would tell you I did all these things. He literally taught me. He goes, this, be, this is how you be a good man and a good father by not doing what I did. Wow. Um, one time when wow. my oldest daughter was about maybe a year and a half or two, I was, we were, I was in charge of her. My wife was off doing something. So I fed her, bathed her, read her stories, chased her around. And he's laying on the sofa watching all this, which is exactly where he was laying when I was her age. <laughs> and and um, I put her to bed and I came out and, my, and he's just quietly and he goes, you're a really good dad. And it was just so loaded because it meant a hundred things. It meant, yeah. and I wasn't. And you yeah. missed out because of that. And I missed out because of that. And I see the joy you are getting from that. And I see how much more meaningful that was than the BS cocktail party. out. So anyway, mm. that's to try to not just hang my dad out to drive because his uh, he got it and he understood and he passed that on to me. So well, that didn't was you, I, the blessing. I remember you... I remember you telling me that story when we were hanging uh, a couple months ago, and, and didn't he say something else then? I remember you saying something that didn't you ask him a question? Didn't that moment sort of follow where you you? I thought I remembered you said something, and he said, "Don't make me." Do, do you remember this? Where he had referenced? I thought. Oh, I, I, well, no, I don't know if it was a question. I do know that one time on his way back, uh, he had always complained because my mom got all the home movies. That's it. This oh, is it was it. all this the home it. movies. I don't get this any of the home movies. Oh, she gets them all kind of it. So I, this is when the time you could do that. I went all the Super 8 and put it on video. For Christmas, I didn't say a word. I go, hey, Dad, sit in the chair. Bam, I popped it in there. And there's pictures of him with me on his hip. And the, there's somebody's carving the turkey. And they're all laughing. And, he, you know, no, no sound. It's like. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it was like that. In any event. Um, I was looking at him and he was just super quiet. And then as the night wore on, he got agitated and, and it turned to some big fights. I don't even know what happened. I was like, what the hell happened here? I don't know. I don't understand. And then later I found him out sitting back and he was just sitting out there smoking, I think at the time. And, uh, and he goes, I'm sorry, but you can't do that to me. Mm. I was like, what? You can't just bring that on me. I wasn't prepared to see that ass that had all that and, and just blew right through it and didn't know he, it was like a, for him, a video of him sitting on a pile of gold treasure mm. and he knows yeah. how he just wasted it and did. And so that really hit me that it hit him. And I, I couldn't, that shows the degree of his regret and how far he'd come. 
But of course, he wasn't far enough in his journey to not let it make him angry there. Um, And I think that was one of the lessons I learned from my dad the most is that being, I don't know, a mature, the kind of adult you want to be means feeling pain without making somebody else feel it. Mm. Yeah. Jeez, at least that's some part of it. Um, but Jeez, the, one profound. other thing I will say about my dad is he and I were so truthful with each other, which I really en- enjoyed. Sounds too light a word. It meant the world to me that we could get to that place where we would say true things. And and by the way, a lot of my the comedy came from this. Like, hey, everybody, <laughs> let's have fun. Let's, what do we? There's no reason to fight. Hey, Dad, watch this. I'm saying, hey, you know. Um, so there was a lot of that. One time. I'm an agitated kind of like rocker. Either you do that at all? You guys have like oh, yeah. a ner- nervous energy in you? Oh yeah. Like so I'm doing this else. watching TV one time, and my dad walked by the room, and this is not a super fatherly thing to say, but he goes, "You go to a mental hospital. You know what everybody in the room is doing?" And I look up at him like that, and I go, "You know what their fathers were like?" <laughs> And he stops. He goes, "That's pretty good." <laughs> he Wait, the room. <laughs> how how old are you when this happened? Uh, probably thirteen, maybe. I don't know, something like oh, that. Oh, that's amazing gosh. that you had that locked and loaded. Wow, I would have come is... up with that like two weeks later. <laughs> yeah, you're like, hey, Dad, the thing you said. <laughs> well, but I, but I wanted yeah. to ask though, like, because some I feel like some a common theme with hilarious people is some sort of like overcoming or compensating for something in their childhood, like a divorce or, or something where they were like the relief of the family. Like I'm going to, you know, relieve the tension for mom during this stressful time. Was that, do, do you feel like that was the fuel for it or were you I, I, class I clown before the that? the, fuel for it i would say a fuel for it i think uh-huh. probably doesn't work unless you have a natural knack at it when you I, right i think it comes from it's a chicken or the egg thing where like it's all tense and then you say something out of nervousness and everybody goes <laughs> and you go oh um, but if you right. didn't right have it in you to say that thing at first it wouldn't be as easy but once you realize you sort of have that guest power on um, that that ability i remember my grandmother um on my mom's side had some hard times with depression and i mean clinical and had uh at that time she had actually shock therapy a couple times which was mm-hmm. very effective for her really really worked but i can remember just being silly and, and trying to make her laugh like there was this there's a song in the in the hymnal called oh perfect love and I was like eight, but I could get this affect this very deep voice and sound like the baritones that would sing her at church. So my grandmother would be real aggravated and I'd go, Oh, perfect love. And, and I can remember go, Just stop it. Just stop. And suddenly she'd be crying. And I go, That's a cool party trick. But it also is a, a tremendous responsibility because you constant, I, there is some of that. There's like, Who's upset? I mean, there's a little totally. bit of being an empath, and mm. and like I would see wow. my dad's upset a couple miles down the road. Sometimes I felt like 
miles before he did. Like, yeah. Oh, that that comment means that in three hours we're gonna. So that's yeah. a lot to sort of carry. On top of that, we had moved, as I said, to Alexandria, Virginia. And so it's like all these people that you don't know, and you talk a little different then. And, and so it was like, like me, like me. That's another thing for sure. Totally. You were to, if we're going to put these things together, talking about letting go of trying so hard. And can, there's a lot where that like me, I still have a lot of that. Mm. I have a lot of that. And, and it's hard to fully let go because part of being likable they're positive things. They're being kind. They're being funny. They're being so. These aren't exactly downsides. But if you put the "I need you to like me" at the front of the cart instead of "I'm just these," I'm just acting this way because this is how I feel and this is who mm. I am. And then they end up like that's better. But instead right. of it's again that desperation. And I've had that a lot of my life. I mean, I got, that's what was really, maybe I think Deacon was a turning point because Deacon had no desperation in him. Mm. I mean, he desperately loved Raina, but he wasn't working hard for anybody to like, hey, hey, I mean, Mm -hmm. puppy dog Chip had to fall away and go away. And I couldn't have gotten that role with any of that in my eye at the audition. Like, am I going to get this? Because they'd look at that. That's not Deacon. So I had to walk in the room and be like, Hmm. Are we starting? What are we doing? Wow. You know, um, so I don't know. I still, again, I still have a lot of that. I have outsiders mentality because of a lot of that early stuff. And I still carry that with me, but you can use that to drive you. I felt like an outsider when I moved to Alexandria, even though I had all these friends, I always felt like I was working. I, I think seventh grade, ninth grade, 10th grade, 12, all these different, it was said wittiest in the, um, in the, you know, in the, what do you call it, yearbooks. And my mom was always like, wittiest, wittiest, what are you know, most likely to succeed <laughs> and all these other things. But all of that was, was, some of it's just who you are, but some of it's the trying. So It's funny, yeah. it's, some of that pings me really hard because I do remember as a kid, learning that humor was this really it's like i don't know that anybody would choose it before you know you have it because you'd rather be fast and you'd rather be good at basketball or um you know cool and people but you sort of i think a lot of funny people um you sort of back into it and then all of a sudden you find it like this is a tremendous weapon like it's not maybe the weapon i would have chosen or shield touche yeah um but I do rem- I have such vivid Im- images and memories of those moments where I'd say something and a lot of people would laugh. And it was like, whoa. It's a okay. superpower. It's a superpower. And so yeah. I think, <clears throat> I think it's, it's a really interesting – you say that so well and so vulnerably and transparently how humor can be that way. But you also say, which I think is true, you do realize there's this weird resp- – like if I can use that word responsibility. I think even at that age that you feel because you, you do become an empath. That is. I don't know a better way to say that. You do realize I have this ability to make people feel something different than they're feeling. And if I'm really paying attention, I can be insanely effective in doing that. If I know mom is sad and grandma's depressed or dad's being, you know, like I can do this thing that suddenly they don't feel like that anymore. And so it's this weird, it's this weird, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and and I felt so much empathy for this kid, but I was having this conversation uh, with another um, dad and 
and he was talking about this boy who's like, man, I really like this kid, but he's said some really weird things to my son that have kind of made me feel like, what's wrong with him? But this kid is a funny kid. And I know, I know it. I see it in him. I'm like, and I, and I literally, I told my wife that story and I was like, you know, I feel for him because I remember saying things when I was working out humor as a kid that were so weird. And people be like, whoa, that's dark. And you realize like, oh, okay, that's too far. You know, and you're just, it's almost like you're working your material, you're mm-hmm. trying to help, but then, but because his kids said something really dark and it was weird. I know this kid and he's not like that, but he is funny. And I remember thinking, I remember that. I know, I remember so many times saying something in the yeah, crowd. That uh, filters like, are tricky too, because yeah. especially when you're young, you don't understand the filters. And, and when your mind thinks laterally, it thinks... It thinks the connections of words and meanings and then secondarily thinks the deep root of what is that saying and how dark is that and who does that hurt. That stuff, it's hard to put that stuff first, especially when you're young. I mean, I always, it was, it's, it's a responsibility having a very sharp wit. Mm. Yeah. Uh, One that I've, I've felt, you know felt bad over many times when I was younger because you'd have a friend and it's almost like if you're, really good at Taekwondo or Krav Maga or something, I imagine. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. Um, and somebody comes up to a Krav Maga guy and goes, hey, dude, and slap, slap, slap. And the Krav Maga goes, whoosh, whoosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, <laughs> all I did was say one comment, but that one comment knew right where the jugular was. And I said it casually and you and everybody in the room went, oh, and you went, oh. Well, it's, so really, it's that, really like, having a having a sense of like how much like read the room how how much do we want to acknowledge what is true and it, you don't mm-hmm. have to acknowledge it all the time you know what i mean oh like yeah. a lot of times it, things that are really funny are funny because they're uncomfortable because they're true and like oh that's mm-hmm. kind of a truth that we don't normally say you know yeah. it's a i, I agree with that and and i so what you learn is sometimes you pay a psychic price for a joke on the backside of it that you go, that was not worth it. I honestly had right. that for Who's Line. There were things in Who's Line. I don't regret many of the jokes, but there'd be some jokes. A lot of them, they're just setting you up to say that they're super right. dirty, but on the right. line thing. And I've said it. I've played that game of T-ball where they go, and you just step out there and go, <laughs> Um, and, but I have to admit there were some of those where I'd say it and the audience would go, ah, and I'd step back to the line or sit in my chair and be like, mm. yeah. And yeah. not, I didn't beat myself up too badly, but it just felt like you can do better. Well, the thing and that's so, so I would try to do better. So this, some of my proudest moments are when they would say, put a, a joke up and I would be on the line like world's worst or something like that or scenes from a hat. And I'd get the easy one that I might not be super proud of later. Uh-huh. And I would think it and I would push it back and I'd just stay there and try to think of the next one. And then I would try to subvert it sometimes and go get. And to me, that felt kind of cool because it felt like being in battle with one hand tied behind your back. Right. Like, yeah. That yeah. was it's not arrogance, but it's a little bit like I, more than anything, it was just, I don't like that. I'll feel better if I get the other one, right. the other joke. I'll, yeah. So, so uh, you, you go, so you, you're, you, 
grow up mainly in Virginia. Um, you go to school, you study. What did you, what did you study? Did you go to William Mary too? I did. That's the funny That's thing is that if I learned anything from my mom and dad, I used to go, how did they even end up together, let alone married? They were so different. And then it was like, well, note to self, never marry anybody you meet at college because that's just a bubble. That's artificial. That's not real. And so you'll confuse yourself and think you found the one. And wow. I think it's actually pretty smart. That was a good analysis of how it happened. In the end, I went to the exact same college and met a girl and married a girl from the exact same sorority. <laughs> and we are the same as happy sorority. As clams. Same sorority. We've been yeah, the that, same dorm her freshman year. So, so how, how do you, God, it's just God you, laugh and God goes, oh, yeah, yeah, is that your yeah, little yeah. rule? That's your rule, huh? Yeah. But, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Watch how fragile Patty. that rule. <laughs> <laughs> what you was don't... your rule again? <laughs> what? What? <laughs> so how did you get from there? You know, being uh, uh, really not having a pedigree for entertaining. You know, in in your in your family, this is like, and then how do you get from there to being in London, playing Buddy? Holly, you know, how does that happen? Well, a lot of, a lot of things come together. Uh, I was, the biggest thing to me in college was the band I was in about sophomore year. I met a, met a guy, guitar player, and then we met a bass player, all same fraternity. And it started out very, very small. I remember we auditioned for this big party on campus and you needed two songs to audition. And we auditioned with these two songs that we had worked up over two nights and, we got the job, and now we needed two hours of music. <laughs> we did. We had two songs, and I was like, "Oh!" So anyway, we did that, and this thing did rather well over the. I stayed an extra year in college. I had graduated, but it was. I just wasn't ready to go to a desk yet, and I thought I'm never going to get a chance to do this again. During that time, I had some of my best friends. My best friend from third grade from moving to Virginia. He and his brother had. His brother was a little older. Um, Dermot and Kieran Mulroney had moved out to Los. Angeles uh, to do acting and Dermot. You're kidding me, both those guys. What? You grew up with those guys. Yeah. That and uh, Dermot struck super quickly. He was on a made-for-TV movie called Daddy, and then he was um, Dirty Steve in Young Guns, and uh, he was fantastic. And, and then Kieran followed him about two years behind him, because that's how old Dermot was compared to us, and Kieran started doing well, too. So my band was falling apart in terms of they were all graduating and they were not going to chase this route. They were all, as the song goes, going to be doctors and lawyers and stuff. <laughs> and um, I always, you always think about the road not traveled. I swear, if Kieran and Dermot had gone to Nashville, I might have gone. But um, it was just sort of having, because I didn't have any but in my family to know somebody that was actually doing it. And I was a TV junkie. I was like, it sounds like both of you. I would just watch it relentlessly. And I watched all the shows and Johnny Carson in fourth grade. My mom tells a story I hosted. This is how old I am. It was the bicentennial. It was 1976. And I was hosting the sort of school bicentennial, um, program like and with songs and whatever and so my mom figured that meant i would be at a podium going the bicentennial it is america's birthday um but when when i came out i just had a microphone and i was just sort of wandering around the stage going you know but just just and everybody's looking at her like what is going on she's he watches johnny carson um so anyway that was in me then and I, and I, and I loved acting. I knew 
I remember the moment that I came out of Rocky, just not just lifted like everyone else, but going that next step and realizing it was because of lights flickering on a screen that I felt that way. Yeah. Because a guy had written a story that I felt that way. Yeah. So I think it's funny. I, I, I thought of music. One other detail. I sort of thought I had met Patty by then and I knew she was the one. <laughs> I don't know how happy I was even about it. Like, well, I have to meet the one now. Um, but I knew she was. <laughs> And I just felt I wasn't sure that I could go chase that musical thing and hang on to her. Hmm. Um, this is a piece of it. This isn't the overriding thing. But I thought, I bet I can go set up something in L.A., work there, live there. That's not so much touring and craziness. And, and then I'll meet a drummer and a bass player and a guitar player, and I can do a band. I'll have it all, you know. Um, Ultimately, I got to have it all because of Nashville. It took 20-some years, but right. that's what took me out there. Um, I got a manager, and then when I – I'm trying to remember. I remember when I, this manager, I realized they didn't know me that well as a product. They're selling me, and they didn't know me. So I said, why don't you guys come over to my house and just get to know me a little bit? So Patty made dinner, and just as part of it, I pulled out the guitar, and I go, I can do a little of this. Um, within like a week – I got a call. Uh, they're auditioning for guys to play Buddy Holly in London. Are you interested in that? And I was like, yes. That was what. I look back. If I hadn't done that, if I didn't had them over, and that's just, that's a God thing. And yeah. so, long story. Every one of these is a deep dive. I could tell you the whole Buddy story, and that would be the whole episode. But that, I look up, and Patty and I are living in London, and I'm the star of the show Buddy. And I'm getting to learn what I know. I'm learning what I want to know acting while I do what I do know, which is playing a guitar and singing. And so I got to do that every night in front of this audience. And while I'm there, oh, here's a little show called Whose Line Is It Anyway? So all of that looks extraordinarily providential to me. Like that was mm. put there, made there. And then all those years later, Deacon really felt like the bookend. Johnny. Dave. <laughs> Look at us. I want to tell you something while I got you here because okay. you're going to fly off to your next adventure and I just want to tell you this. Mm -hmm. I want to take a moment and I want to appreciate you. Oh, please. Take two moments. Okay. Can I also take an another moment to tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel Air? Of a what called Bel Air? <laughs> it's such a big town you have to say the T twice. To town. <laughs> it's a to town called Bel Air. Um, I appreciate a lot of things about you. The fact that you got that reference but also yep. this new skill you developed. Do you know what I'm? Do you know what I speak of? Well, you're not talking about my latte art, uh, are you? Dude, you have become maybe the top, one of the top two or three latte artists you on know Instagram. What? The design is in the coffee. You just got to bring it, it out. It is. It you is. Know? I saw your last post on Instagram. Uh huh. It almost looked like a full moon or a basketball or the head of a cartoon character, maybe in the peanut style. You know what? You decide what it is. Okay. Thank you for that. I mean, honestly, I can't thank you enough for that compliment. Yeah, of course. It means a lot. Is my passion, you know, I'm yep. following the yep. passion. Yes. But really, it's it's just a vehicle for my love for methodical coffee. Oh, man. That is the perfect excuse to drink more methodical coffee, which was voted, I don't know if he knows, which was voted one of the best roasters in America by Gear Patrol. I did know that. Methodical roasts their coffee to best express the life it lived. Mm. Respect the bean, Dave. Come on, RGB. The place, the weather, the soil. And to honor the skilled people who cultivated it. Mm. The cool thing about Methodical is they offer a wide variety of flavor profiles that range from classics that are bold and chocolatey 
always how I describe you, contemporary that are medium-bodied and fruity, how I describe me, and all the way to avant-garde that push conventions, which is how I describe Deville. <laughs> Methodical also roasts your coffee to order, so your bean always arrives as fresh as possible. And you get more than one, too. You get a lot of beans because we respect the beans. That's so right. if you want to become a coffee artist like John, which no one can, and need the best vehicle for it, visit methodicalcoffee.com. And if you use the special discount Oof. code DADVILLE at checkout, you receive 10% off your first order. Now, I would pay 10% more for Methodical Coffee, <laughs> but we're giving you guys 10% off. So go ahead, follow your passion, drink coffee at www.methodicalcoffee.com. To that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, wow. So, the combination so I've got a question because you have... You have so many talents, and I'm curious just to take a second to for like those listening who are young, aspiring, multi-talented people. I would imagine at some point, or maybe multiple points, someone said to you like, "Hey, you need to pick a lane here. Hmm. Like, you need are, are you going to be an actor? You need to focus in on the actor." Or if if no one said that, I, I'm sure you had points where you're like, "Maybe I need to pick a lane." Is this like, would you advise young artists to do that? Or are you like the exception that they're going to, you know, break their own hearts trying to chase after, <laughs> no, you know what no, I mean? John, I, I, I think it's B. Nobody, anybody that cared enough about me to give me advice didn't know anything about the business. And anybody mm. that was in the business didn't care enough about me to give right. me advice. So there's nobody that said that. But I did say it to myself. I yeah. I still would peg myself as a um, jack of all trades, master of none. I I envy like Dave when I see you and your band play. Just the level you guys were at um, are at. It's just I I, I have. I had to let go of perfectionism because I was not even in the ballpark. Perfectionism on my part is sort of like a joke. It's sort of like not it's it's praising with faint damnation. You've heard of damning with faint praise. <laughs> it's praise it's like I so I have no I don't have a shot at perfection, but what I have is doing it as well as I can. And I have a real shot, what I've come to find over the years at connection. Mm. Yeah. And so that, let me get back to what you were asking, because I want to finish up on that because it it ties up everything we've been talking about. But I am a firm believer nowadays, more than ever, I've come away from that thing of, oh, I wish I was the best at that. I said, I'm an outsider. I still feel that way on every front. I am part of Hollywood. I was on this show for six seasons. I started in, I'm now in this Netflix smash hit, but I don't feel like part of Hollywood. I don't see any, and I mean, ignoring awards, I sure don't see any Emmy nominations or anything like that. I'm not even in that discussion. So I always feel like they're the cool kids. I'm on the outside. Not, not, I resent any of the cool kids. God bless them. It's all wonderful. I just don't feel a part of it. And then I'm here in this town and I, can play all this music and release it. And I get to go do concerts. I got to headline. This is truly humble bragging because it makes no sense at the Royal Albert Hall by myself and my band. 
No and way. yet I'm not in this conversation either. And don't eat, I'm not even in the ballpark of the conversation. I'm not in the pottery barn. I'm not in the pottery barn parking lot of that conversation. <laughs> um, and, and so it, that's, a do great I wish I was? <laughs> that stuff would be great, of course, right. but it's just not, I let that go. And so now that's, now I'm glad I have all these different things I do. They're just, they're just part of me. And I, I've heard the phrase recently called talent stacking. And I firmly believe in that. Just yeah. keep adding arrows to your quiver. You don't mm-hmm. play piano that good? Guess what? You're locked down for a year. Um, go play a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah. You yeah. know, those things like that. Every little thing you can do. As I said, I looked back and all those things added up to Nashville. Yeah, if I couldn't, if I wasn't that guy, I would not have got Nashville. Um, he, he, so it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's really fascinating to me how you said that so well. The talent stacking, and I think one of the, and we have to just spend a minute here because it is something I have so much fascination with, and I know John does too. You start doing whose lines anyway, and it opens. You know, suddenly you're this improv guy, which is crazy to me because it speaks to a gift set that was sort of dormant in you to some degree that you start doing and all of a sudden you're like, wow, I tend to be, I, I have a gift for this, but I have to get you to tell, well, first of all, I want to read a quote that, <laughs> that John said, and I'm not, I'm not going to be able to not laugh through it because it's one of the best things I've ever read in my life. <laughs> but John said, as we were prepping for the show, here's the exact quote. And I'm going to laugh my way through this. <laughs> and this is John's words. Cause I'm not as funny as he is. He said, Improv, improv to me sounds like the scariest thing imaginable. I feel like <laughs> I can't stop. Laughing. I feel like when they ask military service members <laughs> to stand at football games, <laughs> they should also ask anyone who has had at any time a part of an improv troupe to stand as well. <laughs> I mean, I can't stop laughing thinking about. It. I told John, I think some of why that's so funny to me is I have this image of Titan Stadium. There's forty thousand people. And you see the military members on the field, and then someone's like, and just as daring, we want to ask anyone who's been a part of an improv troupe. And you see, out of 40,000 people, six people stand up, and it's like a really heavy guy who's 6'3", and is awkward, and has like a... And, he's, know, like and a, he's doing space work? <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, it just is like, I can't stop laughing, thinking about... And then like a really skinny, sweet girl It sounds with like a Key and Peele sketch. I, I could see that. That's, that's a great We should pitch concept. this. But I got... I, listen, I think... It it is something I'm so enamored and fascinated with, but I think even more so you have because you and I talked about this when we were hanging a couple months ago. Will you please tell the story? Because of course I I just wore you out with questions that day. Will you please tell the story about you getting to do improv with your idol in that moment? Because I think this is one of the coolest uh, things anyone has ever. This is one of my favorite stories of all time. Yeah, thank you. Um. The improv thing, it really was. It's a strange moment. I mean, uh, when when I started doing it in the late 80s, very early 90s, and then you get on Who's Line and you think in the history of the world. I mean, you have Jonathan Winters, um, obviously, was one of the early and, and the great ones. My, he's my favorite. He's the goat to me. He's my Oh, really? Favorite. Oh, there you, oh, yeah. there you go. Um, my- uh, Nichols and May. Uh, Wait, can I, can I tell you? I don't know if we I have. I'm so sorry. I have to. Please. Remember. 
Do you? So my uncle, my whole one side of my family is obsessed with him, and he is he is to me that he is the Godfather. To me, mm-hmm. yeah, he's the he's the best. I'm obsessed with him. Um, my uncle did this super deep dive, and probably 20 years ago came up from the internet in his hands, like as the internet is dripping off of him, these videotapes that he found of the Jonathan Winters show on CBS or NBC. It's a 15 minute show. And he found all of the footage. I've still got him on VHS. It is absolute comedy gold. And this is what's crazy about it. And and we need to sit and watch him sometime because you will, you will literally like, you'll just goosebump the whole time. But the thing that was fascinating to me about it, he had a 15-minute show, and literally half of it was unscripted on live TV. And what he would do, he, he had two bits that always, always killed me. They would start the show. He'd come out. He'd have something. he re- And he tells a story at the beginning of one of these about how awkward it is getting out of the shower and your pet is sitting there. <laughs> literally, you'll cry blood laughing because he, he impersonates his dog, like staring at him as he's dripping and wet and naked. But he would come out and do these little bits. And so the next thing he would do is they'd say, okay, so, you know, the noise would, uh, the, the announcer would come over, over the sound system. He'd say, so many people know how funny Jonathan is, but what you don't know about him is his ability to make anything funny. And we're going to show you this on national TV by giving him this pencil. And, you know, and you know this word. Oh, it was basically it, props, except he would do props live in front of, and, yeah. and they would give him the simplest thing. So there's no, you, it is a pencil. And he would do live unscripted <clears throat> in the 1950s. You know, like he do the thing, but the other thing they did, and this this to me was, and this shows to me his genius is they would get the writers on the show, and and they had a show called like A Man Under Pressure, A Man Under Fire. So the guy would come on the you know the noise. I thing, know that. Yes. Yeah. Keep do going. you know I that? Yeah. And so the, his writers would prep a scene where everybody knew what was going on, but him. And so one of them was. Everybody is in a stagecoach. It's they're going. That's going out west. You know, they're doing the 49ers thing, and so that comes over the sound system. And he says, um, "You know, the scene you're seeing here is a man is uh, the, the they're heading out west to do their uh, to to go find gold in the hills. But what's happened is now his campsite is unruly because they've gotten lost. And Jonathan Winters is the leader of this uh, expedition. That's why he's a do 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 man under pressure. And he would walk out in a suit." So he wouldn't change. He would walk out into a scene, and they would be peppered. He ready. wouldn't know. Yeah, yeah. He wouldn't know, and they would all be ready with questions, and they just start attacking him. And he would have to go improv, and it he never misses. He just and it was just well, like you're right. He's the Godfather, and and to wrap it around to what you were asking me, his progeny, I would say, is this guy named Robin. Yeah, here Williams. we go. Here we go. And we Robin go. Williams. <clears throat> For me, that was the first I had seen true improv before I saw Jonathan Winters. Um, and actually, I wasn't even seeing it, if I'm honest. It was a cassette tape that a friend of mine had, and, it, and I, we'd listened to it together in tears. And it was uh, Robin Williams at the improv doing improv. Nobody at the improv did improv. They're always doing the yeah, stand Yeah, right, 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 right. right. Uh, he's right there, and he's like, okay, uh, give me, I would like to do a, a Shakespearean play for you now, uh, if you give, uh, give me a, uh, a topic, you know, and they're like, Three Mile Island, and goes, what ho, it, it doth glow in the distance like a huge acne zit, you know, like, uh, and he was just making it up, and the audience is losing it, I can remember having it in my headphone, I mean, it wasn't even a headphone, it was one of those little white things that you put, I'm like, oh, and it, and it was in tears, because you could tell he was just going, 
So to me, that was the first you even hear of such a thing. All these years later, that story I told you, I get buddy. Um, I had studied with the groundlings on Melrose. Um, so I had an improv. I'd taken these classes where you move up slowly and gotten all the way into the sort of junior varsity groundlings before I got buddy. So I had this... Uh, work I'd done underneath it, but now here I am and I get on Who's Line because of Who's Line, I come get on it in the States after auditioning. And then Drew Carey used to bring a bunch of us, like I think it was a Wednesday nights, we would just, a handful of us, six, would go down and just hang out at the improv. Uh, and when it was our turn, we'd get up and go do a half hour of improv on the stage at the improv. So already I'm like, Chip, this is the place where you, I, I know, I know, I'm trying to work. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where you're that second voice is going. And so we do that for a number of weeks. So I'm finally kind of used to that and able to deal with that. And then one day he goes, uh, Robin's going to sit with us tonight. And I said, I'm sorry, what? Rob, Robin's going to sit in. And I go, Robin. And he goes, Williams. And I'm like, huh? And I'm like, I, I swear there's those moments where in my head, you just look back at God like. <laughs> <sighs> so anyway, he comes out and I get to meet him. He's incredibly kind and, and gentle and wonderful back to off stage. Like, oh, it's nice to meet you. And so and then I'm we, curious in that moment when he said Robin's going to sit in with us, was your knee jerk reaction like, oh, I got to show him what I can do. Like, I got to bring my A game or I, I feel like I would be like, okay, I'm not going to be funny tonight because I'm just, I'm going to be a white I, I actually stage. probably had come through those other lessons enough to know that I couldn't flex. There wasn't a muscle to flex in front of Robin. <clears throat> so it was yeah. relax, enjoy this. This is going to be singular. This will not happen again. <laughs> By the yeah. way, you don't have to be funny at all because no one will be looking no at one you will. at all. <laughs> so just yeah. Get to be closer to him than the people in the audience. <laughs> yeah. Get to be on stage as a audience member. Yeah, so I'm up there, and we, we start off with freeze tag. And in freeze tag, two people doing a scene, and you freeze in a certain uh, like position. Like, like one I remember Ryan would do is um, like somebody's changing a light bulb like that. And they go, freeze. And Ryan would come in, tap this person out, and they'd walk off, and he'd have to assume their position and start a new um, – improv and so ryan comes out and goes your giraffe has a hernia <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's how you play um new not new choice but um freeze so, good. It's so, so good. we're out there and um they're playing something and like there's a rat or something in the in the improv and um robin's like ah, it goes like that and i go freeze and, and, and that Robin has to freeze like that. And the other guy freezes, whatever he's doing. I tap that guy out and Robin's like that now. And he's frozen. So I'm standing on stage with a, with a Robin Williams that can't move or talk, which in itself is extraordinary because what he does, when, what, what he would do when he was on stage, I don't know if you saw it, but he would talk and move a lot. I mean, he was an extraordinarily active guy. He was a supernova. So in this moment, he's just like that. And I walk over and I just literally pick him up in my arms so that he's sideways like this, frozen. <laughs> and he's just absolutely frozen. The audience already laughing. 
and I'm taking this Robin William in my arms like this, carrying his whole weight. <laughs> and I go, I'd like to thank the Heisman Committee. Because <laughs> he, his body was shaped just like a Heisman trophy. <laughs> and it killed, the, it really <laughs> got everybody. But the most, and I was so grateful because I was so right in the moment because they laughed for a while, which meant that I just stood there. And they were nice enough behind me not to yell freeze too quick and kick my butt off the stage. Yeah, right. And in that moment, I was like, you're standing on the stage where you first heard improv performed by the guy who you are carrying, mm. who is not talking, who is being utterly silent to respect the joke that you just did that just killed. He knows it just killed. He's part of it. He's even more frozen than normal because he knows that makes the joke better. And then some freeze, and I put him and on to the next That's thing, amazing. and it was just that is amazing. Yeah, that was I'm I'm curious. That was my award. That was the best award I will ever be have hold on a stage is Robin Williams. I'm curious. Did you did you pick him up? Okay. Did you have the joke in its entirety, and then go pick him up, or did oh yeah? Did you just pick him I, up? And some you were of those like, people say freeze, and they don't have anything, and they go out there. Yeah, I'm not in that much of a hurry to get on the stage. That's wait, <laughs> if something if they just suddenly they get to a moment. Sometimes you miss it. They go they go like that, and then they and then you, and you go oh, and then you get lucky and they do it again. I don't know if that happened or what. I don't yeah. really recall, but I if it was the way I normally do it, I see something go freeze. Hmm. You, it, that's lateral thinking. You go Heisman freeze. That's you know amazing. it's that fast, and so. then you that's get the amazing. Bit. I'm so just when so fascinated by that just improv again to get back to what dave read my words earlier i'm just fast it sounds like the most terrifying thing on the planet i also feel like it's like being on that show being a part of that kind of energy for that long i would think when you're done with it, it it would be like being in the nfl and then retiring it's like what are you going to replace that with did you feel that way? Is there some um, other kind of thrill I'm very that you have to put Because sometimes I'm able to go back on the road with those guys. They come through Nashville, and I went and joined them on stage. Uh, Ryan um, and, and Greg and my buddy Jeff Davis, and I just hopped up there. So that then well, you feel like to, I haven't played next football time that for a while, happens, and they've been on the road. Go. So I'm gonna yeah, it could be a yeah. little nervy then, but I don't know. It was never at the forefront of what I wanted to do. It was this odd little talent. Speaking of which, mm -hmm. real quick, can I tip my hat to Mac Davis, the late, great Mac Davis, who was, I, when I was a kid, saw the Mac Davis show, and I had never seen this, but Mac Davis had a guitar, went in the audience and said, give me something to sing about. Give me a topic, give me a title. And they gave him one, and Mac Davis would improvise a song right there. I had never seen anything like that. Lo and behold, all these years later, I would, that was my forte on the show. And right, yeah. I bought a house and put kids through school by doing that. And mm -hmm. it was not lost on me in the history of the world. How many people have made a living making up songs off the top of their head live? And mm -hmm. I don't think it's a lot. I was one of this handful. And, yeah. and then I would remember then people would ask me, when was the first time? And I go, 
Mac Davis. So all these years later here in Nashville, I get to be at this dinner party with Mac Davis and I sit down and I go, I got to tell you, thank you. You're the first that I ever saw. And, and talk about talent stacking. So the, 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 he was another guy that I could look at and go, oh, he's an actor. He's a singer. He's a songwriter. Yeah. He improvises his music. He's a comedian. Anyway, so hmm. thanks, That's man. cool you got that moment with him. Yeah. That's incredible. Let me actually wrap up all these different things I'm saying in one package that, that uh, I've said it before, but it's only because I've recently figured it out that it all comes together with the concept of making somebody feel something. You said that earlier, Dave, about you can make them feel happy. Yeah, but you can also make them feel sad and you mm-hmm. can do it. You can make them so that I realized that's the common thread and the thing that really moved me was moving them. And that even goes yeah. to the connection. If you can move somebody. So if I can make you laugh with a ridiculous improv or make you cry with a scene from Nashville or make you go like that with a scene from Outer Banks or make you – it's just you're feeling something. I don't know why that I have a Jones for that particularly, mm. but I do. Um, and that's the thing that pulls it all together. Um, and it also, I've found that during this time of lockdown, I feel grateful for the ability to do that. I've, I have a uh, quarantine live stream that I do every Saturday. I think we just did my 42nd one in a mm. row. It's about an hour of songs and talking and everything like this. And there's people that just desperate for connection right now. Mm. Um, yeah. It's hard. And though they don't just get to connect with me, but they connect with each other on that thing. And then mm. also I've been able to do, well, my charity is Leukemia Lymphoma Society. I'm the national honorary spokesman for their Light the mm. Night campaign. And we had a goal for what we were going to make this year. And I was like, uh-oh, this is mm. not going to happen because the concert's that we do every year is not going to be there. The, um, well, the walk we do is not going to happen. We smashed our goal because wow. of this quarantine live stream where people have been donating because of, I did an online concert. But the thing I want to talk about is these cameos. Um, I, I didn't really want to do cameo at first. I don't want to sort of just cash in. And, uh, not that I'm, I'm not judging it, but I just, for me, I don't want to make somebody that likes me have to pay me some money <laughs> for a video. Right. Um, uh, I'm not, again, it's a perfectly fine thing to do, perfectly good business model. But when you tie it to my charity, there's like no, there's nothing that I can't see that's great about that. It's amazing. These people that love, first of all, I, I do love the business model because there's people that are really moved and really love people that, that, that do this thing that we do. And it will make their day and it will change their week and it will change. It'll just gives them a little something. But on top of that, the people that booked it, the money goes to help fight blood cancer. So I'm glad that even in this time of lockdown, because of this Internet and this social media, we're still able to have that connection. What I'm mm. having with you guys right now. Mm. Um, yeah. So that in the end will be what it was all about for me is mm. – um, that making people feel something reaching out and connecting so talk to us about being a dad what is it like being a dad who's an entertainer who's you know lived in la you know had family live there for a season now you guys are here in nashville you know you've been in the entertainment industry um and something that john and i you know we talked to tony halo about this when we had tony on i mean i just feel like people who can sort of live through this industry and continue to be married you know, and not have the ups and downs of what I feel like the entertainment uh, 
business can do to a relationship uh, is always so unique. It's such an, it's an achievement to me. It's a really substantial achievement. And then to have, you know, kids in that too, you know, and I know, I know yours are a little older now, but like, what is that like? Like what, what, what have been the challenges? What have been the things that are amazing about, I can't imagine, you know, having your daughters see you do improv or something with people they, you know, or be on TV and every night. A couple things come to mind. Um, one is, I guess it's, it's funny to hear you say it's an achievement. Um, because I think of, I think of it as a blessing as much as an achievement. I wouldn't go, here's this thing I did. It's, it's more that I feel, first of all, blessed with this wife that can put up with me and with all of it. And was there from the very beginning when I was in that band in college, we'd be touring and traveling there, poor things sleeping on a a sofa in a basement, you know, after some party. So that, cause we all had to travel the next morning. So there's that. Um, and then later I, I feel grateful. I feel blessed with the, the sidecar thing. I said, Re- realizing what was first and what was second. And, and then all those things that I got to do that helped support the family. But it, I had this strange career where I was able to do these guest shots and these arcs on these shows. And there was sometimes there was a lot of things I didn't get. But I can remember walking out of an audition for a major role on a major show uh, for the whole series. So to went, and I, testing in front of the network or the studio. And I'd get in the car and or I'd get home and there'd be a phone call. Again. You didn't get it. They went with the other guy. And I'm telling you, right to the forefront of my head was another year with the kids, mm. meaning mm. I won't be in some sound stage. Mm. Yeah. And the kids are being, cause look, um, when your kids are 16 or 17, they're pretty close to who they'll be when they're 20 or 21 or when they're, you know, but when they're three and four later, that person's gone. That person's mm. not around anymore ever. That's yeah. that moment you have to be with that three-year-old because that eight-year-old is not that three. Anyway, so I sort yeah. of knew that. So I was always – and it even made sense on choices. They go, they want you to go to Vancouver to shoot this. I go, meh. I, I did prioritize that, and, and God bless this, my ability to do that. Whose line was an incredible gift for that because you could shoot 24 episodes, a whole season of Whose Line in a couple weekends. Because you could get multiple episodes from one three-hour taping. So literally, I would, and I wasn't in all of them. <laughs> Those guys were in all of them. I was in maybe, I'm going to make a number, six out of that 24 would be a really strong 20 year for, for me. And I don't think that's possible. I'm just guessing. So that's a couple weekends for a year's worth of work. That's amazing. <laughs> so that meant another year with the kids. We've had some amazing moments. And I think as a father, I know how, I will say this, and this is just my nature with everything, but I, I, I'm glad I did it as a father. My wife and I both did. I'm a, don't leave anything on the plate. Suck the marrow out of the moment so that you don't want to look back and go, oh, I should have worked harder at that. Or I should... When I did Buddy, I was all in. When I did, you know, Whose Line, I relaxed, but then I, so 
when I did Nashville, I, I guarantee you, I gave everything I could to that. Um, it's funny because there's a song we sing, A Life That's Good. It was my favorite song from the show. And there's a line in it that says, I want to look back and say, I did all that I could. At the end of the day, Lord, I pray I have a life that's good. And that's how I looked at being a father, because somehow I had a real sense of how fast it goes by. Um, I, I like to think one of the metaphors that would always be with me was when you're a kid and you're driving in a car. I remember if you're going by trees, like through a forest, they're just a blur. They're just going by like that, right? But every once in a while, if you lock down on one tree, it's, it's like blur like this. And then all of a sudden you lock down on one tree and it's like, and then it blurs again. And mm -hmm. that's what special moments are like, whether it's a vacation or a holiday, or you just pick any, it's not, it doesn't have to be an amazing tree. It's just a moment. You're just having lunch with your daughter and her friend on the way to a soccer game at a wiener schnitzel in, in, in Hollywood. And you're just like, and so I would do that a lot. And so I have a lot of those that I've collected up yeah. uh, in my heart. And we still try to do that. Uh, you know, hearing you th be so purposeful in your decisions, you know, like as I think about, um, you know, when somebody says, hey, can you come shoot to your point in Vancouver for a month? And you're like, you know, I just can't. I think that takes a bravery. It's a few things to me. One, it's a real sign of what you prioritize. But I think, too, it takes a lot of faith. It takes a lot of, like, yeah. <clears throat> it's going to get worked out. This is not the end of my career. This is not, you know. It, it, and when you're in the middle of that, in a career that has no guarantees and, like, 99% rejection, 1%, you know, success. Yeah. It's tough to acknowledge That's also my high school dating of, career. But just <laughs> Right. Yeah, there's some parallels there. But. It's tough to, like, in the moment, acknowledge the cost. I mean, I know for me, I can just, I can just say yes to everything. It's like, say yes to it, and we'll figure it out later. You know, whatever this tour is, say yes. So I think it also acknowledges or requires, uh, like, a level head in the moment to realize, like, this is a big opportunity, but this is going to cost this time. This is also my kids are paying, you know, the price of that, all that. My faith is the foundation that everything else rests on. I honestly don't know how people in any industry, but certainly in acting or music, yeah, I don't know what rock you have to because it's such a fleeting, fast, crazy world. Right. Um, I feel like there's a freedom for sure in that faith. Once you get over the notion, and I got over the notion quickly that I was driving. Mm, <laughs> um, yeah. I, I think sometimes life is like a roller coaster with a fake steering wheel in it and people are that's a great that's a great analogy <laughs> and, and after a while just going, wait a second but just take my hands off it's yeah exactly um well do you think that has something to do you know i think another gift of of you coming up like you did is acting maybe as much as anything maybe as much as anything i can immediately think of has the highest amount of rejection, which would, I think, if nothing, communicate that you Other than your high school jump. dating? Well, let's, <clears throat> I feel like, we'll edit that out. I, I feel like- um, We'll also get back to it. <laughs> we'll also, <laughs> but I feel like that would be a trial, that'd be a baptism by fire on 
how much you can't control something. Music does have yeah. that. I don't think mm-hmm. it because you're not doing as much auditioning in you. I mean, yeah, you're not literally. <laughs> you're, you know? you're, you're rejected generally, but you're not. Yeah, rejected there's just a, you're, you're rejected day. passively. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you know, yeah, some we, people can as opposed say, to being actively rejected. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're getting rejected. You don't even know you're no. getting rejected. <laughs> Thanks <laughs> for caring so much, though. But what do you mean by no? <laughs> we mean um, really no. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, I think it is interesting, and I would wonder if some of that, even at an osmotic level, was something that you just kind of go, you know, you know what? I can't, I can't control this, which I think is such a gift, you know, because again, I, there is that music. I think our songwriting friends, you know, that we all have our professional song. That's a lot of no's too. I mean, you write a lot of songs. Yeah. But also songwriting is, it puts you in that place that how many times have you written a song and you're like, I don't even get the magic of that. I don't know where that came from. I wrote a song the other day and it was just a songwriter, and I had, Oh, here's a title I've had for a long time. And it's more relevant than ever. And I really feel like writing it now more than I did six years ago when I thought of it. And then we're, we try one or two and I go, I don't know. And then I scroll and it's this little jangle I played on a guitar six days ago. And I go, and I realized that the title that I got six years ago just sits perfectly in this little leather seat of this guitar jangle I wrote six days ago. And we write the song and I love it and it's very meaningful and I wrote it with the perfect person. And, and you're like, I had very little to do with that, if if I'm really being honest. Mm. Yeah, it's it. There's a posture to both of them that I think is very humbling and and really profound. If you let it affect you, it sounds like you've done for so long, which is, oh, I'm going to say no to that because it affects what actually matters most to me, and I and everything's going to be okay. Let me say let me say real quick about that no. I learned that no from repercussions and past yeses. I wow, so yeah, yeah. none of it was brave and aren't I a good person? It was oh I get it. I get heartsick and have dark nights of the soul when I do X. <laughs> but that sounds yeah. so much fun. <laughs> so I'm not gonna do X. I've yeah. I've learned that I, I don't enjoy being on in a cold sound stage working on something that I'm not deeply committed with. I I'm no good at faking enthusiasm. Mm. And enthusiasm is my jet fuel. Mm. And that's why I can songwrite. Like, I'm in. I'm in. But that was my problem in school. In French three? Mm, no. <laughs> I just I can't fake it. And I, mm. um, so I have to. I, so that, that helps me because I yeah. go, oh, I won't be able to fake it there. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah, I won't be able to fake being happy in Vancouver for this show that I'm not that excited about. I'll look bad on screen. No. So it's not. Yeah. yeah it, it sort of helps that way. I do think uh, it's it's encouraging. I'm always so moved and encouraged by people that do that. And so even just to hear you speak to that, I'm like, man, I just think that can't be said enough. There is such a dilemma, I think, in, in – um, at the risk of sounding too dudish, but I think there's such a dilemma as a man that's out there like working and trying to be the dad and and lead and serve and give 
that there's this, you know, that we can believe that lie of like, man, this is really up to me to make this thing happen. And I'm going to have to take some sacrifice to make hurt the family, but man, for the good. And you do, you do sometimes, but I think. Let me, let me say one thing too, as a corrective to all of this. Uh, don't do what I don't want to do. There are people that I understand are doing things they don't want to do to support their family right now. Yeah. So I was right, blessed yeah. with the opportunity in those situations to say, no, I have said yes for things I don't want to do because in that moment I needed to support my family. Yes. I'm talking yeah. about the moments where I had a choice. So to all those people that are sacrificing that don't have the, ent- the enthusiasm and are doing it anyway, I remember I had a guy that said to me, cause he saw that I was a father and he was really concerned. He goes, he goes, because I don't, I feel like a really bad dad sometimes. I'm like, why? He goes, because like my kid comes up to me and he's like, hey, you want to play Legos? And I really just don't even want to play Legos. And I go, what do you do? He goes, I play Legos. And I go, then you're a good dad. <laughs> if if you wanted to play Legos, you're just a guy that likes to play Legos. <laughs> so uh, there's all the guys out there playing Legos that don't feel like it. Now, of course, it's even better if you right. once you're doing it, you're like, oh, that's pretty cool. This car. Yeah. I mean, but uh, so it. I, I understand all the people that have to say yes. And I have said it. I don't want to make it like, just say no, if you're not <laughs> feeling it and God will take care of the rest. Um, God right, wants us, right. God gives us our opportunities. Look, it, I, I don't go down on either side too much. There's the power of no. I agree with the power of no. There's nothing more attractive in Hollywood than he turned us down. <laughs> we must have him. Call him again. You know, that's, that's a real thing. But then also there's power of yes. I have done things that, not that my heart is against her or my moral system is against or something like that, but I wasn't so sure of, but it had these little details and those things led to things I, I couldn't know. So, so no is a dead end in a lot of case, but, uh, but an okay, yes, it's not going to cost you too much. Well then, uh, Hey, Hey, you want to come by and do this uh, bluebird thing? Um, yeah. Oh, nice to meet you, Dave Barnes. You know? Um, and then here we are um, saddled with this thing. That's so true. It's so true. And two, just, I mean, it's not lost on me that so much of your, you know, you've had this part of a career that's based on saying yes. I mean, that is improv comedy, you know? True. Yeah. Oh, no. yeah. Yes. You know. And you're right. Yes, right. That's that's, exactly. there, there's, there's a definite life thing about that. Um, the best people are, in fact, it's really part of songwriting because it's hard when you're co-writing with somebody and they say something, you don't want to be like, no. Yeah. You go, yeah, I, I see. I, I love writing with people that go, I, I, there's a lot that's really great about that line and that we need it for this reason. But my only concern is that it makes this, the physics of the song, but it's not just right. like a rejection. It's yes to this part of it. And let's now talk about this yeah, that, part of yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Although it's hilarious to be in, in a room writing a song and you say like, ooh, 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 okay, what about... And your co-writer's like, yeah, yeah, something like that. And they keep going back to it. And you're like, well, no, I meant well, that. Well, I have, a, I have the ultimate version of that. A buddy I know um, from back in uh, L.A., I, um, I, I'm pretty sure this happened. My buddy Pat Finn, uh, who, wonderful, wonderful guy, great improviser as well. Um, I think it was Pat. Maybe it wasn't, in case I'm wrong. Um, but a... 
casting call went out a sheet for some role and it said a Pat Finn type. And he went and he auditioned for it and he didn't get it. Didn't oh get it. my gosh. So yeah, something like that. <laughs> something like Pat Finn, but not I don't Pat think you Finn. guys actually want I thought he was too Pat Finny. Oh it's too much. <laughs> okay, so no, there's never enough Pat Finn. He's awesome. I think that was so we we in these uh interviews um with the same two questions each time (laughs) this is one we don't want to end if you can't tell no give me the questions but before we do i have i have uh one side note question and also just one thing that i want to point out because it's a really cool moment for me so i have two daughters and the first song that i wrote for it was actually before my oldest luca was born um, I wrote this song with uh, the late, great Andrew Dorff. We wrote this song called Him for Her. And you sang this song on season four of Nashville. That is so amazing. I'm like, I know this guy. How do I know this guy? And I knew, God bless him, Andrew. That He was the best. Dude, that song is one of these special songs of Nashville, Deacon ended up singing that song to his sister while she was in the hospital, mm-hmm. unconscious after she had um, done a transplant for him. And yeah. that was a very unique one. That was such a special, gorgeous little song. Gorgeous yeah. song. Thank you Thank for you. that. Well, and you did a great job. That was it. one of the only songs, very few of the songs we just recorded in the, we just did me in the room singing. Everything else was in a studio. Yeah. yeah. We recorded it in the studio. There's the, right. the recording. If you go online and hear that is in the studio. But in the end, I said, I can't be leaning over my sister's hospital bed, lip syncing. Yeah. I yeah. have to, the, I have to, I have to be right there. It has to come right out of my mouth. The quality of it does not matter. Not the perfection, mm. the connection in that moment. Because when my dad was in hospice, I brought a guitar in and I just sang songs to my dad. Mm. And um, that's what I was doing then. And I'm not kidding, John, to have picture the opposite, picture being in that moment and having a song that wasn't the one, that wasn't a jewel but was just one that somebody chose and you're mm-hmm. singing this song to your, it, no, no, man. It's, it's, it's beautiful. And I, and I was very grateful of all, of all the songs I got to do. That one was crucial, pivotal. And I'm, I'm so thankful for it. Thank you for saying that, for telling me that, that you no, should know you there will be days when you pray good. for sun, but get the rain. Mm. Andrew Dorf. Love that guy. Okay, so um before we get to the last question, I did just I'm just curious because Dave and I have talked about this before where you know we have we all kind of wear different hats like um do you have any of that cuz you have so many titles that we could pick one and lead with. If you, if we could pick one, what's the one that you would lead with? Like comedian, actor, musician, singer? You might have just put them in reverse order, just, just <laughs> randomly. 
um, I don't know why I do comedian the disrespect, but I, I honestly don't because I mean it no disrespect because it, right. can, it can be so meaningful. I don't see it as frivolous. There was a time I did, time ago, a little whose line sketches, aren't we goofy little, because you're professional eighth graders, really. And then I'll never forget <laughs> being downstairs sometime and somebody walks in, this woman walks in and goes, I just wanted to thank you because for the last year of my mom's life, she wasn't able to get out of bed. And the only time our house was just filled with laughter is when we would all sit on her bed or by her bed mm -hmm. and we would watch Who's Line. And I was just convicted of mm. seeing it as frivolous. So I never mm. saw it that way again. Having said that, mm. the closest measure I can have is I can see myself not doing comedy. I'm in that place right now. I would love to go back and do some Who's Line with those guys and those friends. Um, but I can see me not doing that. I can see me not acting. Mm. I can't see me not writing a song or singing it. Mm. So I don't yeah. know what that means. I don't know if that's necessarily a good measure of what should go first. I understand there's the one that right. most people know you by should go first. But if you're asking me for me, I think at root and at heart, I was a singer-songwriter before I was anything and will be a singer-songwriter after I'm anything. Mm. That's cool. That's cool. And that's actually, that's the right answer. So you got that one right. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so. Move on to the bonus round. <laughs> yeah, you get to keep playing. Yeah, you get to keep playing. Uh, level two is, what is the one thing you want your kids to know? I guess, I, I hope they know. I think they know how deeply their father loves them. Mm. And on the one level, I mean me. And then on the probably even more important level, I mean God. Mm. Yeah. So we'll use that phrase and they can split the meaning as they will. <laughs> they can divvy it up and yeah. parse it out. Or okay. use it for both effects. Yeah, yeah. Um, so last question, and this is always one of my favorites, but it's a, it's a humdinger. Uh, what do you want your kids to say at your funeral? What I want for them in that moment is no regret. I, mm -hmm. that thing I have of leaving nothing on the table. I did all that I could. I want them to feel like, I don't want them to go, Oh, I wish we had this, or I wish we'd said that thing, or if I'd just been able to. And I don't think we have that. I, 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 I'm one of those people that my dad was this too. Every goodbye is important. Um, my grandmother, my dad's mom used to never say goodbye to anybody without being on the front porch going like that. You would see her as you drove off. I'm, I'm not that far, but you don't leave things unsaid. You don't leave. Um, and my family, if, you, if you're in a bad spot and somebody's getting in a car to go somewhere, it's still... Come over here. I love you. <laughs> you, know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, you just do that. So um, that's, you know, really being careful. But in general, I, I will. This is so weird to um, connect this with Nashville. But uh, my connection to Nashville was trying to connect real things to this dramatic thing. So, like, when I'm in that bed, or is it, is there soapy qualities to the fact that my sister donated her liver? And yes, all that. But 
that's not what I was doing. I was dealing with how does this hit me on a real human level? I'm really in this room because people are and people do. Um, yeah. Spoiler alert, Raina dies near the end of Nashville. And um, <laughs> so I had to go, even as this character, what, what now? If, if all that mattered to my character was her for all this time. And then what occurred to me was Deacon got strong as an addict, you, you have to do it yourself and you have to make your moments. You hit your rock bottoms, all that. But other people give you strength. And Raina helped give Deacon enough strength to, to get well and to survive his addiction. So now the question became, once I thought this, I went, ah, did their love make him strong enough to be able to survive her loss? Wow. Mm. Jeez. And, um, I want them to miss me, but I want whatever we have and whatever I've given them that I've raised three children that just have those wonderful tree memories and are just mm -hmm. able to miss me, but also feel like there was nothing left unsaid or undone mm -hmm. and we'll be together again in a better place. Mm -hmm. Gosh, that's great. Dude, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank you guys. Dad, please.